0: as they say nowadays, going back 20 or more years. I used to go and preach in a little mission hall in the western outskirts of Newcastle upon Tyne. And uh, I used to chat to the men, women. They were good, honest, hardworking folk, retired folk, 70s and 80s, used to meet there, Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon. I think the last time I went, Rebecca was a baby and there was a big thunderstorm as we drove back. It was a hot, humid day. But um, I used to roll up there. And two things used to strike me about these folk. One was the way that they would pray before the services. Such heartfelt prayers. Really pleading with the Lord, come and be in our little gathering. Come and be with us. Come and speak to us. Lord, we want to hear your voice. And uh, one thing we should start doing here, I think, as I make it up on the hoof almost, we should, we should be praying that as we begin every service together. Lord, come and be with us. Come and be with us. But something else struck me about these people, which was that um, when they talked about people in the Bible... Bible narratives, they sounded as if they were talking about a bit of gossip about neighbors just down the road who lived in number 33 around the corner, the way they would talk about, uh, I don't know, you know, did you hear what Ahab did and Jezebel? Yeah, that was terrible, wasn't it, man? And did you hear that story about Simon Peter and the way he denied Jesus? Ooh, did you hear about that? as if it was local gossip, okay? And it was there was something quite refreshing about that. Uh, these people were very real to them. These Bible stories came alive. They would, they would shake their heads and say, oh, and they would also then praise the Lord, having shaken their heads a few times. And I'm sure they said a good few things about David and Bathsheba. And this is the way that we should look at these narratives in the Bible. These men and women are basically just like you and me. You might say, 3,000 years separates us from David and Bathsheba. That's an awfully long time. The past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. Well, yes and no. They were men and women and children, boys and girls just like us in every in every important way. I can't read Genesis 4 where, where Cain says to God, when God says, where is Abel your brother? And you know what Cain says, don't you? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? It just sounds so contemporary. It just sounds like a, a kid who's trying to get off the hook, doesn't it? It's human nature. It's hasn't changed since Cain, let alone since David. The Bible is honest and realistic and gutsy. It gets inside us. It judges us. And when we come and look at a passage like this one we've just read, we're coming to a mirror. We're looking at our own souls in a big mirror. And we're seeing our own sins and our own failings. And why are we preaching tonight? Why are we looking at 2 Samuel 11? Well, I've entitled tonight's sermon, David's Road to Ruin. David's Road to Ruin. And as we look at David's Road to Ruin, let me just ask you a question, all all of you here tonight. Are you, are you tonight, perhaps, for whatever reason, on the beginning of a road to ruin. And if you are, you are to be warned and urged tonight that there is a way out of that road to ruin. But let's look tonight at this road that David took that we might escape our own road to ruin. There are three things that David did which were fatal or would have been even more fatal had it not been for the Lord's mercy, which we'll come to another time. But three things that David did. Number one, David tries to cover his tracks. He tries to cover his tracks. We left the narrative last time at verse 5. And that bombshell of an announcement by Bathsheba to David, I am pregnant. And that report is like the starting gun which propels David into frenzied action as he realizes that his own previous actions have had consequences. Consequences which are going to damage his reputation and indeed his own life and everything else very seriously unless and unless He thinks he can manage a convincing cover-up. What is it that motivates David from verse 5, verse 6, to the end of the chapter? It's simply this. I must not be found out. That's it. There's one thing that must not happen. I must not be found out I remember when I was a boy I remember people saying things around you uh, like this there are ten commandments they were occasionally referred to in school But I remember people saying but there's an eleventh commandment there's an eleventh commandment what is it? thou shalt not be found out it doesn't really matter at the end of the day what I do wrong does it? As long as I'm not found out. No one needs to know what happened. I can massage the evidence so that no one suspects anything is amiss. The last thing anyone needs right now is a scandal. Let life carry on as normal and no one will come to any harm. I just need to play my cards carefully. Keep things hushed up. Don't let the cat out of the bag. Just just get through these next few days and weeks and uh, keep my ears to the ground and uh, have a few convincing excuses and alibis and no one's going to come to any harm, least of all me, if I don't get found out. So that's what David is doing, you see. He does everything he can to cover up his tracks. This woman's pregnant, Bathsheba, and I'm obviously the father. Well, there's one fairly obvious solution, then, isn't there? Thinks David. Let's get her husband back on the scene. Let's get Uriah back from the uh, from the uh, the theatre of war, from the uh, front line, and send him home to his wife for a night. And um, I'll encourage him home, and I'll I'll send some gifts with him. I'll send a nice bottle of prosecco or two. I'll send her some Chanel eau de parfum. And in a few weeks' time, you know, everybody will suspect and think that he's the father. And uh, phew, problem solved, big sigh of relief, close shave, but I'll have got away with it. Life can carry on, and I've ridden this scandal successfully. That's David's plan. But there's a snag, isn't there? Uriah doesn't go home to his wife. It's part of his duty, he says while his fellow soldiers are fighting the Ammonites, that he will not allow himself that pleasure of going home to his wife. He's a military man under military orders. He's going to stay with his men on duty. So what will David do now? Well, thinks David, let's keep him a bit longer. Um, Let's have him round. Let's wine and dine him. Let's give him that extra glass and that extra... Yeah, that extra drink after pudding and then that extra little brandy and then something else, a nightcap for him or two or three. Let's let let's uh, make him completely sozzled so that he completely lets his guard slip and he stumbles home to his wife and forgets his duty. It's a bit of a gamble, but things are getting a bit dicey now, thinks David. It's well worth a try. But even now... David won't go home to Bathsheba Uriah won't go back to Bathsheba what an honourable man doesn't he contrast rather well with David at this point in time doesn't he what resolve what self-discipline so David is now at the point of ultimate desperation the only remaining option is what we call today the nuclear option Uriah needs to be eliminated, Uriah needs to be liquidated, Uriah needs to be history. So David writes a letter to Joab, his chief of staff, you make sure that Uriah is on the front line when I send him back tomorrow and make sure also that when the fighting gets really, really fierce that all his men All your men, you move away from him. You withdraw from him. He's there by himself and he's going to get killed. Let Uriah die. David signs Uriah's death warrant. Only, do you see the tone in which David stage manages these things? And so does Joab. And they're colluding together and you can see how cynical it's all becoming. It's choreographed. And see how David almost seems to be pretending to himself when we get towards the end of the chapter. He's apparently trying to, trying to salve Joab's conscience, but he's trying to salve his own conscience in the meantime. Look at, look at just how dishonest David is. In verse 25, how, how disingenuous he is, how he pretends that it's all a terrible shame and an accident. Look at verse 25, do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and then another. These things happen in war, don't they? You win some, you lose some. Swings and roundabouts, hey, it just wasn't Uriah's day, was it? Do you see the shameless, brazen, effrontery, the the, the self-deceit in David's own words? He ordered Uriah's death, and he's putting it down to Kesarah Sarah. It's just bad luck. How calloused his conscience has become. But let me ask you again why are we looking at these things? Why are these details in the Bible? This is the reason because you and I are just like David. And the Bible is a mirror for our own hearts and souls. And though you may never have conspired to have somebody murdered as David did with Uriah, we all attempt to cover our own tracks. We do our best not to be found out when we are literally as guilty as sin. We go to great lengths to protect our own reputation, to cover our own backs. Can you imagine David in a modern day setting? What would he have done? I'd better wipe those text messages. I'd better delete that internet search history in case somebody sees what I've been doing and looking at and who I've been talking to. i better hide away those materials. i better fabricate some story. I'd better have some story about me going somewhere when I'm actually going to see someone else. I need to sustain this cover-up, and I need to all the time keep smiling to the world and pretending to everyone and even to myself that everything's just fine and there's nothing to worry about. I'm living a lie, but... The more I live it, the more I believe it. That's what David's doing. And that's what you and I do. When we're on a course of disobedience and delusion, we start to believe the lie that we are actually writing for ourselves. and Living it out. He covers up his tracks. And then a second thing that David does. He leaves a trail of Destruction. He leaves a trail of destruction in his wake. This is what this sad chapter narrates. A mounting, devastating tale of destruction. And we need to go back beyond verse 5 of chapter 11 and Bathsheba's announcement. We need to go right back to the beginning of the chapter and in time even before the beginning of chapter 11. But here's the question. When did this whole sordid episode actually start with David? What was the fuse which once lit refused to be put out? It started when David set eyes on Bathsheba and lusted after her. Now let me be quite precise about this. You might say, but it began before then, didn't it? It began when David decided not to go uh, to war and he stayed at home and didn't go with his soldiers. Let's be quite clear. That decision, as we saw last Sunday evening, created the opportunity for temptation. It did. The inactivity of David was an occasion for temptation, but it was not in itself, necessarily sin. When did the sin begin? That's the question. The sin began when David clapped eyes on Bathsheba and decided to take her for himself, knowing full well that she was another man's wife. And once that sin was committed, well, you've seen those domino rallies, haven't you? Maybe you've seen these amazing domino rallies on on, on some sort of video where there's hundreds, thousands of dominoes all laid out in some incredibly amazing pattern and you push one down and they, they all roll down, don't they? One after the other. And that's what's happening now. One sin leads to another. One sin is committed And the only way to get out of that is to commit another sin, it seems. So David begins with lust. What's lust? We saw last week it's that that overgrown, turbocharged desire that burns a person's whole reason out of their system. It bypasses and short-circuits their thinking and their wisdom. And the lust of David, the covetousness of David, the desire of David, led to adultery. And then adultery led to this scheming. And the scheming took the form of various lies. Lies. False witness against a neighbor. And one lie leads to another. It's like these dominoes. You've told lie number one. You've got to tell lie number two, haven't you? To make sure that lie number one seems consistent with what you're now going to do. And then you've got to tell lie number three and lie number four. To keep things looking nice and sweet in the eyes of everybody else. But when your cover is about to be blown and all these lies will be revealed and exposed as lies, then you reach for that nuclear button. And the lying of David gave way to murder from lust to murder in a few short steps. That's what happened. You can't find a more accurate, concise description of what David has done than these words in the letter of James, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, where James, writing in his hard-hitting, honest way, says this. Each of us is tempted... When he is lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth what? Death. Death. It's all ended in death. A life has been cut short. An innocent man has been murdered. There's got to be a funeral now for Uriah. There's a grieving widow called Bathsheba. There are the tears and wailings of bereavement. And it all started because David could not take his eyes off another man's wife. What's the lesson for us all tonight? I say it's this. We, you and I, need to be afraid of sinning. We need to be afraid of sinning. We need to know that what we might call that one little sin has the potential to be like a, like a snowball. It's a little snowball on a mountainside and starts to roll down the hill. And before long it's gathered the loose snow. It's become a mighty avalanche. It escalates into a thousand much bigger sins. We should learn from David's experience that we should deny sin any opportunity to master us at the very earliest stage. And not to be casual about it and say, hey, never mind. It's just a little sin. It's only a little sin. I think I've told you before, I remember as a young Christian, and it could have been me, it could have been anybody. But I was talking to another Christian friend, and uh, we were talking about people in the church we happened to worship at at that that time. And uh, I had a thought about somebody else in this church that was... An unworthy thought, an unkind thought, an untrue thought, a, an unloving thought. And I clearly had this thought in my mind and I was about to say it. And this friend of mine said to me, Go on now, Paul. You've sinned already by thinking it. Just say it. Now, it could have been me saying that to him or him saying that to me. It doesn't matter. But the point is, a thought that is sinful can grow when it becomes a statement, a word, or an action. You see, sin has the potential to grow and to become more damaging. And sins need to be strangled at birth because sins can be addictive, can't they? We start and we can't stop because we have no strength of our own to stop sinning. Sometimes Satan says to us things like this, don't worry. I only want you to sin just this once. We need to recognize in ourselves our own patterns of temptation to sin. We need to recognize very, very honestly the weaknesses in our character that make certain sins, certain processes of sin, more likely to happen in the year eighteen forty four the great american pastoral theologian archibald alexander he he wrote a wonderful book Uh, but uh, that book includes near the end twenty directions for young people for young people in the church and he says this and this could be for young and old and those in between He says, study your own constitutional temperament. In other words, get to know yourself and what you're like and consider attentively the power which particular objects and circumstances have over you. Know where you're weak. Nowhere you are liable to be tempted. Is it greed? Is it pride? Is it lust? Is it anger? Is it, it could be any number of things. And he says this, you may often learn even from your enemies and your slanderers What are the weak points in your character? And that will happen. Sometimes somebody will say something to you and they they don't mean you well. They mean you harm and they're angry with you and they snap at you and they say something about you which, uh, which is not very nice. But it might be true. It might be true. It may be a grain of truth in it. At least. And it's worth remembering that wisdom there. Because David is embarking on a road to ruin and he's left a trail of destruction which has resulted in a dead man and a grieving widow and his own reputation about to be in tatters and his own family about to implode as we see in the chapters which follow. But we need to come to the climax of this chapter and of tonight's message. And this is the third and the the most terrible thing of all actually and if you've been asleep until now which no you haven't but if you have please wake up this is really important thirdly and finally David acts as if there is no God David acts as if there is no God come to the final two verses of chapter 11 let me read most of them and then just pause. When the wife of Uriah, verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And just pause there for a moment. And you could imagine at that point David thinking, couldn't you, well, it's been a rough ride. There's been a fair bit of damage in the process. But I've done what I set out to do. I've I've covered my tracks. No one knows. I've not been found out. It's a shame about Uriah. It it really is a shame about Uriah, but... uh, But at least I've got his his wife now. I've got Bathsheba for myself. All over and done with. It's been a bit of an adventure. But it's kind of all ending happily ever after-ish. Or is it? We then go on to the end of verse 27. And these solemn, solemn words. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, And this has been the invisible elephant in the room throughout the chapter. There's been no mention of the Lord God. David has carried on as if there were no God. Is this the David we know and love? Is this the David who was after God's own heart? What was David doing during these weeks and months when he was waiting for the birth of this child? Can you imagine that David wrote many of his wonderful psalms during these months? Can you imagine that David was praying many prayers to the Lord that he once loved during these days? What did David do when a reminder of the Lord came into his head? Did he suppress it, silence it, push it down, push it away, suppress the associations of guilt whenever he heard about the Lord? Oh, I can't think about that now, too painful. Let me say this to you tonight. If you or I try to cover up our sins by our own scheming, living a lie, living multiple lies and causing mounting damage in the process, then what happens to us? Any spiritual life in us evaporates like a riverbed on a hot summer drought that goes on for months. It dries up and the result is barrenness and hardness and deadness. Those regular times of devotion, we used to come to the Lord maybe every day, but now we're, we're doing something we know we shouldn't do. And our conscience accuses us, but we try to push it to the back of our minds, but what we don't do is come to the Lord. Oh, no, 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 no. We can't do that. If we do take part in anything that looks vaguely Christian or spiritual, we just go through the motions We have to keep putting up, uh, as it were, an appearance. We have to look as if we're Christians. We have to look as if we love the Lord. We mustn't give it away to our family or our friends or anybody else. But our hearts are disengaged. We're far from the Lord. But here is the problem. That invisible elephant in the room may be invisible, but he's still an elephant, Do you get my meaning? He's still there. You can't ignore God. You can't wish him away. You can't pretend him out of existence. God isn't going to disappear anytime soon. You know, there's so much in this narrative, it occurs to me as I look at it, it's a bit like Eden revisited, isn't it? The temptation, the desire, the lust, the taking, and then the hiding, the covering of the tracks, the retreating into the forest, the fig leaves. I can't see God, so God can't see me. Maybe God isn't there. I can say I don't believe in God. Ah, that will help. I can sell my conscience by saying perhaps God isn't there after all. But the trouble is that he is of course he is you can't make god go away it was david himself who wrote in both psalm 14 and psalm 53 you know the words of the opening words of those two psalms the fool says in his heart there is no god and david has now become that fool effectively He's that fool at the end of this chapter. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. But David is carrying on blithely, innocently, brazenly. Butter won't melt in his mouth. His one-time heart of flesh that loved the Lord has become a heart of stone. It'll take a mighty shock to awaken him and that shock we will see, God willing, next Sunday evening. The Lord himself has to graciously come soon and shake David out of all of this. But not yet. He's still living a lie. Last Monday, I'm very grateful to uh, Sonia and Barbara for recommending that we did this. We watched as a family uh, TV adaptation of that famous play by J.B. Priestley and Inspector Calls. And if you know the plot, very good. If you don't know the plot, I'm about to slightly spoil it for you. Still worth watching though. Maybe you did it at school. Well, near the end of the play, Mr. and Mrs. Burling, whose guilt has been laid bare in the whole unfolding plot of a young woman who took her own life and all of this family have been implicated in that that whole sorry story. But at the end of this play, the parents are relieved. The parents are rejoicing because it turns out that the man who came to question them about this suicide attempt was not really an inspector at all. And there's no suicide, uh, apparently, in the infirmary. Oh, they say. What is there to worry about? We're off the hook. We can get back to normal again. Let's celebrate. We're not in any trouble. We can carry on enjoying our our daughter's engagement and so forth. But the last act, as the curtain's about to, to fall, is the phone ringing and Mr Burling answering it and being told that a real inspector is about to come round to question them Because a young woman has indeed committed suicide, attempted suicide, and died in the infirmary. And there's no escape for them. And there's no escape for them. And this is the point, my friends. There is no 11th commandment which says, Thou shalt not be found out. It stops at number 10 Thou shalt not covet. Isn't that interesting in the light of tonight's message? Why is there no 11th commandment saying, Thou shalt not be found out? Because of the character of the God who made us. The God who knows everything. The God who has, number one, an all-seeing eye that looks inside your own heart and mine. And the God, number two, who is a God of absolute justice and righteousness, who must punish sin. The scripture says something quite different to thou shalt not be found out. You know what it says, don't you? Numbers 32 verse 23. Anyone know what it says there? I wonder how many a child has been told this down the centuries, and an adult. Be sure your sin will find you out. Because we have no cover for our sins in the eyes of this all knowing God. And every single member of this human race knows that when they're honest with themselves. That's why the title of John Blanchard's book is so eloquent, so powerful. Does God believe in atheists? Does God believe in atheists? And the answer to that question is a very short answer with two letters. What does it matter whether someone says they don't believe in God? Who cares what little, weak sinful rebellious sinners think or say about god it's what god says that counts and god tells us that people by their unrighteousness suppress the truth romans 1 verse 18 that's it's all there in romans 1 you know this is the human predicament This is the explanation for why the world is as it is, because people in their unrighteousness suppress, stifle, hold down, push down, try and get rid of the knowledge of God. You will never find in this whole wide world an atheist who is at peace with themselves, It's impossible. If they think they are, they're lying. If they still think they are, they're deluding themselves. You will never find somebody who has examined all the evidence objectively and in a neutral fashion and come to an honorable, honest, worthy conclusion that there is no God. The Bible tells us that that's impossible. People... Say there is no God because in their sin and rebellion they suppress the truth that is clamoring for their attention day and night. And that's why David himself says, the fool says in his heart there is no God. Only a fool says that. Don't be a fool, be wise. You have a conscience. God gave it to you because you know that there is right and there is wrong. And you know that there is truth and there is falsehood. And you know that you must one day stand before God and give an account for the life that you have lived. Oh yes, we can all ignore God for a time, as David did. If you or I are on a course of destructive sinfulness, we can live for a time in practical denial of God. But if your soul is worth anything, friend, which it is, then come to your senses like the prodigal son who, as it were, lived a life of abandonment and said, There is no father, there is no God, there is no right or wrong. I just do what I want. I live my own life. It's my life after all. I'll do what I want. And then he realizes that doesn't get him very far. There's a trail of destruction in his own life. And then what happens to him? He comes to his senses. He comes to his senses. And he returns to his father. And let me finish by saying this, because this is the most wonderful thing of all, isn't it? When he returns to his father, he finds his father's arms open wide. He doesn't see his father standing at a distance frowning with a wagging finger and a stern look on his face saying, you get away from me, you're not my son. I disown you. You've really gone too far. I can never receive you back. No. The open arms of a father. And it will be true for David, won't it? It's going to take a huge shock for David to be shaken out of his delusion." see that next Sunday evening. But, 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 this is the thing, friends. There's a way back for him. There's a way back for him. There's a way back for you. Don't carry on along that trail, on that road to ruin. Maybe you're not on one right now. I hope you're not on a road to ruin right now. I hope that at the moment you're walking with the Lord and there's nothing Shouting at your conscience saying, this, this, this needs to be addressed. I don't know. You know. The Lord knows. But I'm saying this, if now or any time you find yourself on that road to ruin and you've been covering your tracks and you've been saying, no one will know. No one will find out. God won't see. No one will know. Well, God does know. But he's a God of love. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of pity. He's a God of grace. He's a God who says, look at my son on the cross. Look at my bleeding, dying son, Jesus. Do you know why he's bleeding and dying? He's doing it for you. He's doing it for you. He's saying, I go to the cross for these whom I love. Don't go to ruin. Don't follow the broad road that leads to destruction. Don't end in that everlasting shame and loss. Don't throw away the word of God that you've heard. Don't despise the warnings of parents. The prayers of those who love you. The words you've heard from the Bible and from the preaching of God's word. Don't throw these things away. But turn to Jesus Christ. Who died for sinners. Whose death is the only salvation for sinners. And you will find... He is gracious and ready to receive you. What I'd like us to do now is stay in our seats and Peter will put up on the screen some words. The words of the hymn by Joseph Hart, Come Ye Sinners. Let's just read those words and have a moment or two of silence after each screen. And pause and think and pray, all of us, where we are now. I'll read these words. Come, ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power he is able. He is able. He is willing. Doubt no more. Let's just be quiet for a few moments where we are, and then we'll read the words together again in a moment. Let's say these words together to ourselves, to one another, remaining seated. Come, ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus, ready, stands to save you, full of pity joined with power. He is able. He is able. He is willing. Doubt no more. And the next verse, Peter, we'll read these again together. Come, ye needy. Come and welcome. God's free bounty glorify. True belief and true repentance. Every grace that brings you nigh. Without money, without money, come to Jesus Christ and buy. And the next verse. Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous sinners, Jesus came to call. You know that word tarry if you tarry till you're better, that's an old fashioned word that means if you wait, if you wait and say, Well, I'll wait till I'm better. I'll wait till I've learned to improve myself. I'll wait till I've learned a few lessons in life. And I'll wait till I'm worthy enough. And then I'll come to God. But if you wait until you're better, you'll never come. Because Jesus has not come to save the righteous. He's come to save sinners. And if you don't think you're a sinner, then you can't be saved. But if you know you're a sinner and if in the light of all that you've heard from God's word now and throughout your life you realize that sin separates you from God and then you realize that Jesus went to the cross for you a sinner then you come, you come and he will receive you and he will give you forgiveness and everlasting life. Let us pray.